Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. If you're here in person rather than live, you'll know it does not feel like the first day. So I feel like I'm living in Chicago again. Although that's not exactly true because I just checked. It's 59 here and it's 66 in Chicago right now. So this is one of those few times in life that I can't bust on my Chicago friends for uh, the, the cold weather they always have. But anyway, we're glad you're here and want to turn our attention to God's word as we continue through the book of Hebrews. Now, there are... A lot of hall of fa- halls of fame that celebrate people who have accomplished uh, great things in their respective field. For example, there, there's the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, has 362 members. Um, the World Golf Hall of Fame. If you go down to Florida, you'll go. You'll see the World Golf Hall of Fame. Uh, uh, 146 members. Uh, maybe you're into chess. You can go to the World Chess Hall of Fame in St. Louis. There are 40 members of that. Uh, it's not exactly a Hall of Fame because it's not a building, but there's obviously the Hollywood Walk of Fame, right, in Hollywood that has 2,752 members there. And one that I've definitely not been to, but intrigues me, is the Mascot Hall of Fame. In Indiana, it's got 25 members. So, and there, there are so many more. There are so many more. The National Women's Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Country Music Hall of Fame, and even in Hayward, Wisconsin, the National Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame. So if you go into one of these places... You're likely to hear some conversations about comparisons and contrasts. Like, hey, who do you think was the greatest quarterback to ever play the game? And you, you might have arguments back and forth. You might compare, what about this athlete uh, of his era versus a modern athlete and how would they do? And uh, maybe musicians, people might compare different bands or groups. Comparison and contrast is a big part of the society that we live in. In fact, if you are uh, are going to choose a restaurant and you haven't been, you're likely to to look at how people have rated it, how they compare it with others. Or if you're going to sell your house and you need a realtor, so you're likely to go to their website and see if the reviews that people have given them make you comfortable with that person or not. Now, there may not been, have been an official Christian Hall of Fame in the first century. But the writer of the, the epistle of Hebrews frequently compared and contrasted Jesus with other religious figures, both for them present and past. In the first couple of chapters... The writer talked about Jesus being far superior to the angels. And then you 
we come now to chapter 3. And he's going to compare Jesus with another great religious figure for the people of that day, and that was the man Moses. So let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3 and read the first six verses. Hebrews chapter 3, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Now let's set the stage here, the context Chapter 3, verse 1 begins with a very important word, the word therefore. And the therefore that begins Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, looks back to the closing verses of chapter 2, which have just described Jesus as a high priest who helps us. And now this therefore is going to point back and show us what our response is. To that is. So it, it looks like this. This is verse 17 and 18 of Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter two. For this reason, uh, and the reason is because he helps humans, not angels. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus offers believers help as a high priest. And then we get the next section that begins our passage for today. Therefore, in light of the fact that he is this kind of high priest, I'm going to challenge you to do something. Now, notice who he's talking to. Holy brothers and sisters. These are Christians. God views us, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He views us as holy. We are set apart. That's what the word holy means. It means set apart for God's use. It's not that you know, we, we tend to like put grades of holiness and, and think some things are more holy than others or whatever. But God just says, if you're a Christian, you are holy. 
You are set apart by him. You are holy brothers and sisters. In fact, we know from chapter 1, verse 3, that he purified our sins. That's why we're holy. Not because of us, not because of all of our great decisions, but because Jesus in his work on the cross purified us. It also looks back to chapter 2, verse 11, which says both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So the benefits of being a Christian, first of all, you're made holy. You, you also are part of a family, brothers and sisters. You're made one in the same family. And you also share in a heavenly calling. Every one of you has a calling on your life if you're a Christian. God is taking you through a journey, a pilgrimage of living for Christ right now. But ultimately, you are going to end up in heaven if you are a Christian. It's a calling. His calling that he puts on us is to make us like Christ and then more and more like Christ until we reach heaven. And... One commentator puts it this way, rather than living with an earthbound perspective, the Christ follower responding to God's call lives in light of a heavenly orientation. So this is how he's starting. Brothers and sisters, in light of this great high priest, you who are holy, you who belong to the family of God, you who have this heavenly calling, I want to challenge you to do something. I want to challenge you to fix your thoughts on Jesus. I'm going to read the verse when it comes to the gold. Will you read that with me out loud? I'll read the white. You read the gold. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. Out of all of these six verses, there's just one command. It's just one thing that we're called to do. The one command that you and I are called to do based on the fact that he's an incredible high priest who helps us is fix your attention on Jesus. Fix your attention on Jesus. That's the call today. That's the command today. That's the challenge today. It was the challenge to them in the first century and today. And we live in a world that is we are busy and distracted It's the same challenge for us today, to fix our attention on Jesus. Now, this word that's used there means to fix your attention or notice carefully. Let me point a couple other places it's used. And later in the letter, um, verse 24 of chapter 10, let us consider, that's the same word translated As the word consider, let us consider how we may spur one another on to toward love and good deeds. Jesus used it in Luke 12 when he said to his disciples, look, look at the ravens or consider the ravens, consider the ravens, put your attention on them for a minute. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? And then in Acts chapter 7, uh, it's recounting the experience when Moses uh, 
went on the mountain and saw the burning bush when God appeared to him. And speaking of Moses, Peter says, uh, and when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. And he went over to, here it is, look more closely. He heard the Lord's voice. I am the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses would trembled with fear. And then it appears again at the second part of the verse. He did not dare to look. He did not dare to look. That's actually, I said Peter. That was Stephen's speech, I believe. I, but the point is that it's a focus on considering something. Now, so Hebrews 3.1 is urging us to fix our thoughts on Jesus or fix our attention on Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, he's our apostle and high priest. We already know from chapter 1 that he's God's final word to humanity. God spoke in the past through all of these different ways, dreams and visions and so forth. But in these last days, he spoke to us through a son. He is the messenger. He is the apostle. That's what the word apostle means. It's one sent with a message. He is the high priest. In chapter 2, we learned the beginnings of the, the ministry of Jesus as a high priest. And actually for several chapters in Hebrews it's, it's, we're going to dive in more and learn about what that ministry means. Now, there's a pattern that Hebrews uses frequently when it's giving, when the writer's giving commands. And it's interesting. The command will come first, usually, the exhortation. And then the writer will explain why he's giving that command. The writer, the writer will support that command. That's exactly what's happening in, he, in these six verses. We get the command right up front. The command is fix your attention on Jesus. And then he's going to show us why it's so important to fix our attention on Jesus. What is the basis of this? Why is Jesus the one that's worthy of our attention? Why should we be focusing on him and not some other great religious leader? And in fact, he is going to compare Jesus and contrast Jesus with a great religious leader for them, the man Moses. So the command comes and then he's going to build it up. But before we actually point out what those contrasts are, let's notice how Jesus is similar to Moses in verse two. And the answer is in faithfulness. He was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. In all of Moses task, he was faithful to God. Whatever God gave Moses to do, he was faithful in. And just like that, Jesus was also appointed by God the Father. Now, this is part of the mystery. Jesus is equal to God the Father. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But in his humbling himself for 33 years to come live as the Son on earth, in that ministry, he was appointed by God the Father to come live a perfect life, to die for sins on the cross, to be buried and to rise again and to leave, to begin forming the church, begin uh, 
gathering disciples and commissioning them and sending them out for God's mission in the world. That, those were the tasks to which Jesus was appointed by God the Father, and he was faithful to it. So all of the Jewish people, remember the first readers of Hebrews were Jewish Christians. They were people who had been Jewish and now had just become Christians. All of them would have looked at Moses and said, what a great leader. What a, what a faithful person uh, Moses is. In fact, you might ask the question, it's a, it's, a, it's a very valid question to ask. Why does the writer choose to compare Jesus with Moses? Um, there could have been many other religious leaders that he could have been compared with. He's already been compared with the angels, but why Moses? Well, let's think about what Moses did and who Moses was. In fact, for the Jewish person that lived in the first century, if you were to ask them, who is the greatest religious figure ever to live, most of them are going to answer you, Moses. They're going to look back and point to Moses. Moses was the most revered religious figure in much of Judaism. Why? Because God chose Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. And he led the children of Israel through the Red Sea, through the wilderness. He taught them. He gave them the law, right? Remember Moses going up on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, getting the law, the Ten Commandments from God, and coming down to give them to the people? This, this was someone who was revered. Um, I don't know that there's a contemporary equivalent. Probably for Catholics, it might be the Pope. For evangelicals, it might be Billy Graham. I don't know. You know, There are people that we think about, and depending on what your religious background is, you would look at them and you would place them really, really high up the ladder. That was Moses. I think there's another reason, at least, why he chooses to compare with Moses, and that's Moses' connection with the law. Again, Moses is the one whom God, the human instrument, whom God used to write the law. And we've already compared in the first couple of chapters Jesus with angels who were mediators of the law. Now we're going to compare Jesus with the one who actually wrote the law. Now think about this. These first readers, having been steeped in Judaism and grown up there and now put their faith in Christ, but they were being tempted to go back. They were being tempted to turn their back on Jesus. Oh, maybe he's not the Messiah after all. Maybe we've made a mistake. We've left the religion of our families and our friends and so they were turned back, maybe to go back to the way of Moses. Again, I can see this scene of, of Moses coming down the mountains with these, these tablets. And that was ingrained in their thoughts. Moses was faithful. Jesus was faithful, but Jesus was superior to Moses. And that's what verses 3 to 6 show us. 
they show us two ways that Jesus is superior to Moses. First one is that Moses was created, but Jesus is the creator. Verse 3, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Now, the writers just in verse 2 has made a reference to God's house. Now he's going to play off of that and make an analogy that comes from architecture, building. You look at a building and there's glory involved in that building, but he's saying, really, the greater glory belongs not to the building itself, but it's to the one who built it, for the one who is responsible for it. When a house is under construction, people might applaud the beauty of the structure. They might go, wow, this is a great house. Look at this. Look at these columns. Look at these walls. Look at that space, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But think about it. If all you had was that wood and carpet, drywall, marble, granite, whatever, you had all of these elements and they were just lying on the ground... There wouldn't be any glory in that, right? It's it's the fact that someone or several someones can take all of that and design it first and then build it into something that's beautiful, right? I mean, I don't know a lot about construction, but I was privileged when we built this part of our campus, that we're in now to to watch it in 2001 from September 2001 or maybe maybe it was August 2001 up to June of 2002 for about 10 or 11 months this room that you're sitting in along with all the classrooms the cafe playground all all of this this was being constructed this once was just a piece of ground lying here flat and to watch all of the different uh, people and groups of people come in, the graders, to to get the, the ground so the water would flow in the right way. And then it just seemed like they worked and worked and worked and you couldn't see anything. Everything was like you, you didn't see much progress. You knew it was happening, but it was like all these pipes being laid in the ground. And then they would bring in the concrete footers and they poured them in here. And then we watched the other stuff start coming around, the structure start coming, the, 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 the metal framing for, for the walls, and you started seeing that. And, and then things like you see these huge beams that, that go across that support that wooden ceiling. Those, those were actually manufactured off-site, and they brought those. Those are pretty heavy, as you can imagine. They brought them in on the, these, a crane had to lift them up, and, and put them in place. It was just, it was neat to see it all come together. And people will often say, you and I know, of course, this is the church building. This is not the church. The church is all believers. It's you and I. But God has given us a church campus and a church mil- building to meet and gather together and to be trained and to go out and serve the Lord in. And we thank God for this campus and we thank God for a building like this. But all of this stuff by itself would just be wood and carpet and Material, right? There's, 
There was an architect behind it. Somebody had the expertise to listen to us and say, here's what we're looking for. And they drew it all out. And we have sheet after sheet after sheet of architectural drawings. And then skilled laborers came in and and they did the work to actually build it. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about when he says Jesus has been found of greater honor than Moses just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. Jesus is the one who built the house. God built everything. He built the universe. God created the universe and everything in it. And as something of a side note, although I think it is related, I personally believe this is why the the teaching about creation, for instance, is so, uh, what's the right word, rejected or maligned or ignored in American, typical American education or society because people know, people know if there is a creator, if there is a person who is responsible for making this world and making us, then we are accountable to him, right? We are not greater than he is. We are the thing that is built And I think that's the reason why ridiculous theories are given more weight than the truth of Scripture because people don't want to do that. And they apply logic and reasoning that they apply nowhere else. Nobody goes in an art gallery and looks at a beautiful painting and say, wow, look at that. Isn't it amazing that all these different colors were just laying there on the canvas and they are on, on, uh, not the canvas, the whatever they're laying on, and they jumped up on the canvas into this beautiful picture. Or they open their computers, they're going to run a spreadsheet, and they go, isn't it amazing that all of the parts of my laptop were just laying there in the computer factory and somehow an explosion happened and look what I get. No, there's a, there are designers. There are people that build laptops and build iPads and iPhones and watches and computers. And there are people who paint paintings and they deserve honor. So it is with the world. God is the designer and the creator and he deserves more honor than the building himself. Verses three and four clearly support the deity of Jesus Christ. I said a little bit ago, the passage talked about Jesus being appointed. Lest we think that Jesus is in any way lesser than God the Father, think about what verses 3 and 4 are saying. He is the builder. He's found more worthy just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself for Every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. So scripture says that God built everything. God created everything. 
The scripture also says that he built everything, including the world and his house, the church, through his son, Jesus. Remember Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2? In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. So the creator is more worthy than that which is created. Moses is part of the house. Moses is an important part of the house, God's house, God's people, God's work. Moses had a big role in it and he was faithful in it. But Moses didn't create the house. Jesus created the house. Jesus built the house. Therefore, he is superior. So that's the first reason, first way that Jesus is superior to Moses. Moses was created, but Jesus is the creator. And secondly, Moses was a servant in God's house, but Jesus is the son over God's house. The difference between being a servant in and a son over. Verse 5, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. Here again is more evidence of the unity of the Bible. Here's more evidence of the way all of the Bible works together and points towards Christ. Look what it says. Moses was faithful, and what did he do? He bore witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. He pointed forward to things that God was revealing in the Old Testament, but that what God would reveal even more clearly in the New Testament through Christ. Now, the original word for servant here is not the normal one that is most often found in the New Testament. It's, it's a little bit more of a, a tender word, but it still speaks to somebody who is serving someone that is superior. But there's a difference between an attendant, a servant, and a son. And even if we were to put it in our terms today, there's a difference between an employee and a son. Suppose John Smith is the uh, foreman of a a manufacturing plant where 3,000 people work. And hopefully John's a good guy and treats them all with respect, but they all answer to him. He's the foreman, he's in charge, and they're employees. What a difference it would be if John's son walked onto that campus into his office, right? You see the difference between servants and sons? This is what is an an analogy for Moses was a great servant, but Jesus is God's son. And he says, he refers to God's house. Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. What? What is God's house? What is this referring to? In the Old Testament, it's it's the people of God. It may, in some ways, refer to the tabernacle. Moses had a lot to do with God's house. The tabernacle was the place where God would uh, God's presence would be manifested for the people, and then ultimately the temple. 
But all of Moses' work was was designed towards God's people, giving the word to God's people, leading God's people, shepherding them, speaking to them, even representing them. And in the New Testament, God's house is still the people of God, but now it's the church. Because God's people consist of all believers in Jesus Christ, whether they are Jewish or Gentile or from whatever background they come, and they are in the church and they are God's house. Now remember, think about this. Think about these first century people. They're being persecuted. Some of them lost their lives. Some of them lost their families, their jobs, and all of this. Hebrews was written to show them that that Jesus Christ is the greatest and more superior than anyone and anything that they could ever imagine. That he is God's final word to humanity. And to prevent them from apostatizing, that is, deliberately rejecting their faith in Christ and turning back away from Christ. He's writing it to encourage them to persevere unto maturity. So that makes the comparison between Jesus and Moses all the more telling, all the more important. Let me just read a short paragraph from commentator Raymond Brown that I think just just captures it. He says it better than I can say it, so I'm going to read his words. Moses was a temporary servant where Christ is the eternal son. Moses was a witness, whereas Christ is the revelation itself. Moses was a faithful steward in the house, but Christ is its owner. Moses could only be a part or portion of the house, whereas Christ is the builder. Moses loved God, but Jesus is God. The implication is plain. To forsake the way of Christ for the way of Moses is to go from the greater to the lesser. So right here in the passage, in the middle of verse 6, there's something of a shift. He's been talking about Jesus' faithfulness and Jesus' superiority. But now he's going to make a statement about the reader's And their status. He's said, Jesus is over God's house. Uh, Who or what is God's house? We are his house. We believers are God's house. If indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Now think about the assurance that that would have given to the very first readers. They had been rejected by family and friends. They had been cut off. They had been cast out from the synagogue. And yet, God is saying, I'm not going to cast you out because you're my house. You're my family. This gives them assurance. But we need to ask the question, what what is the meaning of this conditional clause? 
if indeed we hold firmly. We are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. We're his house means we're members of God's family. This is speaking to Christians. But the if means provided we hold firm to our confidence and hope or persevere to the end. This does not mean that it is up to us to keep, to quote, keep ourselves saved. That we somehow need to do enough good works to make it until the end. But here's what the conditional element is naming. If we keep holding to our confidence and hope, our hope and our confidence are where? They're in Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He is our confidence. We hope in him based on who he is and what he has done, not on based on who we are or what we have done or will do. We are his house if we hold firmly. It's not just this author that stresses perseverance. That's what the author is stressing. True Christians persevere. That's what this is teaching. Somebody can make a profession of faith, and that's one thing. But if somebody is a true believer in Jesus Christ, the way that you're going to know that ultimately is if they persevere in their hope and confidence. So other places, just let me give you a couple. Jesus, telling one of his parables, talks about the seeds, the different seeds that were sown. He said, the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, same word, and by persevering produce a crop. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 2, by this gospel... You are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So salvation is an inward reality. And the inward reality of salvation manifests itself outwardly, and that provides assurance. The writer of Hebrews is not going to give false assurance to people who may profess with their lips that they follow Jesus, but don't match it with a lifelong faith in him. He is addressing the group collectively as believers. But I'm sure he realizes that some might manifest a different reality over time. I love the way George Guthrie words it. Perseverance does not gain salvation but demonstrates the reality that true salvation has indeed been inaugurated. Let me read that again. Perseverance does not gain salvation, but demonstrates the reality that salvation has indeed been inaugurated. Or as F.F. Bruce put it, perseverance is the test of reality. That's how you know if someone is a real Christian. It will be borne out in perseverance. Now, we're going we're gonna to discuss... These matters of eternal security and God's preservation and our perseverance many more times in Hebrews because Hebrews is going to bring it up several times. But in short, the biblical perspective is this. If I could summarize it in a very short sentence with three parts, it would be this. God does the saving. God does the keeping. Christians persevere. 
That's what the biblical teaching is. And we need to give credence to the whole biblical witness. God saves, God keeps, and as a result, Christians persevere. So here's God's word for us this morning. Jesus and Moses are similar in their faithfulness, but vastly different in their essence. They're not in the same category. Moses is ultimately not even really like Jesus very much because he's a servant. He's not the son. Because he's created, he's not the creator. Think about the descriptions of Jesus just in these six verses. Seven descriptions of Jesus. He's the apostle. He's the high priest. He's faithful. He's worthy of more honor than Moses. He's the creator. He's the son. And he is over God's house. So the title of this sermon points to the truth that though Moses was a tremendous servant and leader for God, he and Jesus are in separate categories. Separate categories. That's why I say Jesus and Moses are similar in their faithfulness but vastly different in their essence. Well, I opened the message by talking about some halls of fame, right? And how many different members those various halls of fame had. All of them that I mentioned were, you know, multiple members, most of them in the hundreds and one in the thousands. Now, let's keep that analogy going and let's imagine that somehow... In the first century, there would have been a, let's call it a divine hall of fame. Right? We're going to really get at who is at the very top. And maybe the people would have seen it like this originally from their background. They would have, they would have put people like Abraham in there and John the Baptist. And Moses, and maybe you keep going a little bit higher and you get to angels and then maybe, maybe there's Jesus. But that's, that's not what the divine hall of fame is. Here's what the divine hall of fame is. The divine hall of fame has one member. That this is it. You go to this hall of fame, it's not like going to Canton, Ohio and seeing hundreds. You go in the divine hall of fame, you're going to see one. You're going to see Jesus. That's what Hebrews teaches us. Moses is great. Moses is to be uh, honored. He was faithful. But Jesus is God. And therefore, in light of that, what should we do? Fix your attention on Jesus. Fix your attention on Jesus. It's just as good for us today as it was for then. Fix your attention on Jesus. We fix our attention on so many other things. We're so distracted by so many different things. What's going to keep us going? What is going to help us? What is going to move us and motivate us? What is going to ground us? It is going to be when we fix our attention on Jesus Christ. And then we're not other people. We're thankful for other people, but... You know, they may fail and they may mess up. And we don't get devastated when we see somebody that we respected fail because we weren't serving them to begin with, right? 
So there's some areas, if, if we think about this, and here's how I want us to start closing. How can you fix your thoughts on Jesus? Let me mention three areas. First of all, for salvation. Don't fix your, if you want to become a Christian, if you want to make it to heaven, if you want to have God's favor on your life, don't fix your attention on the church or religion or some rite or some ritual. Fix your attention on Jesus who died for you. For sustenance. You know, life is hard. Life is hard in general. And then the Christian life is no bed of roses. And even when life is going relatively well, there's, there are bumps in the road. And then sometimes we have big bumps in the road and we face big trials and big difficulties and big temptations. What do we do in those moments? Fix your attention on Jesus. Put your attention on him. He's the one that's your high priest. He's the one that suffered for you. He's the one that became human so he could understand. He's the one that invites you to come to him. And finally, for others. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.